So the uh, title of this uh, presentation is uh, Incorporating People with Lived uh, Experience into Clinical Practice. Uh, and we'll start by hearing with someone um, who has lived experience share about what their training was and how they got involved, what went well and what could be done better. Uh, and then you'll hear a narrative uh, from, from me about what uh, uh, really made a difference. And then we'll share some general suggestions on uh, what would help uh, moving uh, forward. Um, JP, I'd be really interested if you could share a bit about um, how you got into your training, what it involved, uh, and uh, how you were able to graduate and complete that. Sure. Um, well, I guess my training kind of started out as a um, as just something to kind of fill my time. To be honest with you, I, I think it was something that uh, it was suggested by a case my caseworker at the time that this would be. Uh, you know, something good for me. Um, frankly, I, I didn't really think it would be something that was good for me. I was, you know, still very deep into my substance use. And, you know, to be honest, I, you know, I had trouble navigating the most basic conversations, you know, with, uh, you know, cashiers and, and at Tim Hortons, let alone uh, thinking I could be helpful to somebody else. So it was a bit of a long shot uh, that, you know, that I started this with. And, you know, it, um, you know, and, and it grew from there. So it turned out to be, you know, kind of, you know, I think one of the best developments of my life to, 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 be, to, to be able to sort of take my uh, substance use um, experience and, and, um, and flip that into to an actual career was like, you know, just sort of a dream almost, right? Like to think that I could do that and not, and not a insignificant career either. I, I'm doing, you know, very well for myself and I'm, and I'm, uh, you know, very proud of, uh, of, of what I've accomplished. For some reason, I'm not able to hear you. Uh, with the training program, did it involve courses, classes, on the ground uh, activities? Sure. Yeah, great question. So I think it depends on, on who does the training. But yeah, where I took the training, they had, um, you know, it was, I think it was three days a week, and they had different speakers that would come in every day. Um, and uh, I mean, this is just kind of the first level of training. Then, then when you're you know, you're through that. I think it was a 12-week program. They have like a practical placement, and um, and my my placement was to uh, was to make a um, uh, I, I went to a um, uh, to a, a housing center that was uh, you know for serving our population, and I had to cook a brunch for 18 people on with a $20 uh, with a $20 gift card, um, and um, which was which was no small feat, but I think kind of what gives you the idea of what of, of, of what this program's a little bit about, and I did really well in it because I, I stuck in that program. I ended up keeping that placement for about five months because my colleagues who had been given this placement, um, when they got the gift card, the $20 gift card, you got a $20 gift card the night before, and they, um, you know, they used that $20 gift card for their own needs, and they weren't able to go cook the breakfast because they, they spent the $20. And, you know, I think that kind of tells you where people are at, right? And, and I was fortunate enough that I didn't, I didn't need the $20 that badly that, you know, I was able to go to work and, and do the job. But I think that kind of gives you an idea as to what, you know, where, where these programs are, the baseline of these programs is at. So, so you had about um, three days a week of uh, courses, and then you had this placement that involved you cooking for 
uh, for, for people. And it was the consistency in both of those things that allowed you to graduate. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that was kind of stage one of it, right? And then, so that was just with that one training program. And what was it like when you moved from that environment uh, into a hospital setting and you were onboarded as a staff of a hospital? Well, there were lots of steps in between there. So I didn't go straight from that type of training to a hospital employment. So I went from there to to the, uh, the uh, placement, as I described, and then I volunteered also at at a, at a uh, home a food bank. I volunteered at a food bank, and then I also took a job at a homeless shelter first. So, you know, it was, there were all these little in-between steps before I could and even dream of working in a hospital, right? Because that's, a, you know, a gig that for people like me, that's, you know, um, a, a really uh, a really unique and special opportunity. What was really good about the experience of starting in the hospital and continuing in a hospital? Uh, and uh, what could have been done uh, better uh, in the onboarding process? Well, I, I, I think that, you know, it's working in a hospital versus, I mean, it's, it, it's, it, it's just a whole nother, it's a whole nother kind of, um, you've got support, you've got security. Um, I mean, my first, I, I remember, you know, the, the first job at the shelter and nothing against the shelter was, it was a wonderful, wonderful work. But I, I remember I got, you know, I got hit on my, on my third day, like literally punched in the back of the head by, by one of the, one of the clients. And, um, and, you know, I, I didn't know how to react and I didn't know how they would react. I didn't, I didn't really know anything. I wasn't really trained that well as to what the policies were, but, but they asked that client to go for a walk for 15 minutes and come back. And, that was the consequences for punching a staff member in the back of the head. And I'm not, you know, it, it, I don't know where I, where I really think about that, to be honest. If that happened in a hospital, you've got a lot more support. And um, that's a big difference. So any gaps that might have been there in the hospital experience were much less than you would find in some of these community agencies. At the same time, these community agencies were more open to hiring people and directly involving people in clinical care. Right. You know, it's a, it's a totally different level of care that you're providing in, in a hospital versus in a, in, a, in, a, in a community setting. The community setting, they really didn't care if you had lived experience or you didn't have lived experience. You're just there to do a job, right? You weren't hired because of your lived experience. The idea in a hospital setting, or we like to think the idea in a hospital setting is that you're there because of your lived experience that you're bringing to the table. So it's a completely different kind of situation. When you think to the onboarding at the hospital and the few years that you were there, um, was there any kind of thing that was missing, any support that would have been more helpful uh, in terms of the process, either for you or some of the colleagues that you worked with? Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think the challenge is, is that you're taking people with, you know, very recently lived experience and putting them in, into a, you know, especially these days, putting them into a very stressful kind of clinical setting where our, you know, most seasoned healthcare professionals, clinicians have trouble managing. So what would you think about throwing a, a recently, you know, a recently unwell patient or, or recently well patient into that same setting? And so I, I think the idea is that you, you need to really build in supports for those people. I mean, I've been very fortunate that I, you know, was able to work pretty independently, but I think that's a, 
you know, a testament to my previous work experience, but not necessarily what, what other folks are going to be experiencing. So I think it is key that you have the proper supports built in for people to debrief about their days. And, and this is not something you, you know, an average nurse or an average pharmacist, you wouldn't build in an extra support for the pharmacist to be able to debrief at the end of the day, right? You just assume he's got, he's got his, he's got his stuff together that he's going to be, he or she is going to be able to do that. Well, you know, and, 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 and hopefully they do. But in, in the case of someone with lived experience, maybe not so much. How were you uh, able to uh, work your way to getting a, um, a clinical position as a case manager? Uh, and what do you miss about being a peer support worker in that environment? Um, well, you know, you, you, you know, you, like I think back to my own journey, right? As I, it was a caseworker that changed my life. It was a caseworker's intervention that that uh, that allowed me to to put the pieces back together of my life. So, in that way, it's something that I I yearn to do, uh, and and I did a lot of even as a peer. There 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 are some some gray lines between, or some fine lines in between these two roles. Um, but you know, I continued to do education. I continued to work in every placement I could. I worked in the inpatient unit. I worked in the uh, withdrawal management service. Um, I worked in, uh, in, in, in any ED capacity I could. I, I worked in every different department in that building and every opportunity that they gave me or every, over, every overtime op opportunity, I took it. So I think that might be, um, you know, probably contributed a lot as well as going back to university. And, uh, and and taking uh, addiction studies at McMaster, which was another, you know, obviously a, a big component of me getting that placement. And anything that you miss about being a peer support worker, as opposed to be now where you're more of a caseworker, that's your official title? Paperwork. I miss not doing paperwork. <laughs> because as a, as a caseworker, all you're doing is so much paperwork. And, the one thing about being a peer is that that's the one thing you're immune from is you, you I mean, you do have to do notes, of course, but, but you don't have to be, uh, you're, you're not filling out someone's tax return for them. Um, <laughs> and um, although I can say I'm better at filling out someone else's tax return than I am my own. So thank you so much uh, for that. What I'm going to do now is I'm just going to summarize my experience working with you uh, early on. Uh, and I'm going to share a couple of ideas just for people to think about moving uh, forward. I'm just going to talk for about uh, three, um, three minutes or, or so. Um, when I started working at St. Michael's Hospital, um, it was very clear that we needed to have harm reduction services, harm reduction support. And unfortunately, in my fellowship, I hadn't been trained in that. Uh, I went down to the, the works, which is the Toronto Public Health uh, Agency, and they made it very clear that uh, me just learning it wasn't going to be enough to bring in those principles. And we had to have someone a part of the uh, clinical team. Um, a colleague of mine who's the head of um, addiction, uh, Dr. Questel, was working with TCAT, which was the agency that JP did his uh, training with, and they've been working for a couple of years trying to figure out how to get some part-time funds to bring in a couple of peer support workers. And the first few months that uh, JP and his colleague joined us, it was transformative. I have memories of patients that wouldn't talk to me, and then similar patients were all of a sudden 
they'd have small talk with JP, uh, JP would go have a coffee with them, all these kinds of experiences. And every time I would ask JP, what do you do? You're like, I just had a conversation with him. I just brought him a coffee. And then I came back a couple of days later. I have memories of patients in the emerge that would refuse to talk to me that were clearly unwell, that would text and talk to JP over the course of a, of a couple of uh, weeks. And then finally they would uh, come to clinic and get support. Uh, I've had memories of patients that um, were using throughout the day, all day, and then all of a sudden they'd have gaps just through that relationship uh, with uh, with JP. And I've had memories of people that came to hospital where I believe, and I might be wrong, but but I believe uh, anecdotally, um, they were more likely to stay in treatment, they were more likely to consider the treatment options we were offering, uh, and they're more likely to complete the uh, course of uh, care, at least from what I saw. And it was almost like magic. Like there was no amount of motivational interviewing. There was no amount of psychotherapy. There was no amount of um, medications I could give that would allow uh, these people to stay and complete those courses of, um, of, uh, of treatment. Um, in that time, there's a lot of things that I've realized uh, as well. You know, I, I tend to give people a lot of uh, responsibility and I didn't always realize uh, how much support was required and uh, what's a reasonable amount to delegate to which, um, which person. I also didn't fully appreciate or realize the amount of pre-coaching and debriefing required for every patient encounter. Some of these patients are quite uh, unwell at the time that they come in. Some of the outcomes are good. Um, I've had a medical training. I've worked as a psychiatrist for many years. I've developed all these strategies to deal with these complexities and my own internal uh, transference, counter-transference. Um, these are not training the peer support workers have had. And so I think the infrastructure may have um, been able to have been designed a, a little bit um, a better. Uh, and also, it's also hard to be the first person into an organization, the first couple of people, uh, because we, we'd never had peers before who were a direct part of the um, clinical uh, team. Um, I really believe that uh, peers are essential. What they allow us to do as healthcare providers is um, uh, reconnect with that compassion uh, and that hope uh, that these are people and human beings. Sometimes you only see people when they're angry, when they're frustrated, when they're yelling, uh, when they may be lying in some kind of way. But this is how people have coped for, for years or decades or whatever that might be. And being able to see the human underneath and uh, being able to provide that compassionate care uh, is a very important skill. And having people like JP on the team, it's almost just a reminder that uh, everyone can become uh, and everyone was uh, someone like uh, JP, uh, JP uh, is, you know, and JP was as well. And we just have to figure out how to create an environment where they're more likely to get um, uh, better. The, the second thing, uh, having someone uh, on the team, uh, is that we get a better idea of what are some of the steps required for um, recovery or at least to reduce the harm that the person's uh, experiencing. Uh, and it's going to be different for each uh, person. But having someone there to have that dialogue who will tell you that, hey, you know what, you know, you, you probably shouldn't have said that that way. Or, you know, it might be a little bit intimidating if you come in and uh, bring things like that. Or maybe, you know what, I'll just talk to them in the hallway and then uh, I'll, I'll let you know if they want to talk to you. Uh, in that time, um, since we started working together, I think it was 2017, uh, 2018, I can't remember the exact uh, year, a lot of organizations have brought in uh, peer support. I've seen patients that also work in uh, peer support. Uh, and I think a lot of the similar themes are, are there. It's transformative having them uh, on the uh, team. Uh, it's it's nice when they're remunerated uh, properly, and it's also nice when they have the proper support uh, to deal with these chaos, because I don't think uh, the medical field is... Uh, comfortable or was ready to deal with the amount of death that we're, we're seeing in this uh, patient population. Uh, and hopefully over time, there'll be some kind of infrastructure to provide uh, uh, good support for them. I know for me, when I've had a team member who 
used to or who may currently uh, inject drugs, all of a sudden we have someone on the team that speaks the language of the people uh, we're serving. And all of a sudden um, the, the trust can develop much more quickly. A few organizations have come up with very specific rules around confidentiality. So disclosing what you can share, what you can't share, and trying to navigate that line between are you an advocate for the patient, or are you an advocate for the doc, because sometimes it can get to be a bit of a, a gray area. But we, what we really wanted to do today in this brief, brief 15 minutes is to share with you the story of a, a peer who's excelled at their uh, craft and uh, moved on to other things. But still, for me, the role of the peer was so powerful uh, for what the person did, and also hear a bit from a uh, physician uh, who um, tried but also struggled with how to incorporate peers into the practice effectively. And we're so excited to hear about the involvement of uh, others, and we hope that people consider what kind of infrastructure is going to allow it to be uh, successful. And thank you for hearing our uh, story. Mm -hmm.